On the eleventh day of the eleventh month, at eleven o'clock, we stop and remember the service and the sacrifice, the lives and the deaths of those who fought for Australia in the First World War, the Second World War, and all the wars since then right up to the present day. The words appear before us, lest we forget. But what exactly is it that we're supposed to remember? This is Signs of the Times Radio with Kent Kingston. It's great to have you here for another week of Signs Radio. And on the phone with me from Avondale University College is Professor Daniel Reno from the School of Humanities and Creative Arts. How are you, Daniel? I'm very well. Excellent. And, and look, I should have also said you're a singer-songwriter. I've, I've heard some of your original songs and, and quite enjoyed them. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but but so history has been, I mean, you, you have a finger in, in a lot of pies, let's, let's face it, but history has been a passion of yours for a while. You've um, written a number of books focusing on the First World War in particular, looking at the, the surviving cinema footage we have of the First World War and also looking at uh, some of the chaplains in the First World War, a little bit of an untold story there. What, what is it that keeps bringing you back to, uh, to the First World War? I guess I've always been fascinated by war. It, it is an intrinsically fascinating subject. It's, it's, you know, humanity at its destructive worst and, uh, mm. you know, often noble best. <clears throat> More recently, I've tried to marry my interest in religion and my interest in war mm. by, by studying the nature of not just the chaplains, but I've actually published on the religious views and and experiences of the Anzacs themselves. That's right. Yeah, yeah, the guys in the trenches. That's right. Yeah, that, that was your most recent book, wasn't it? Mm, yep. Yeah. Anzac spirituality. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, it looks like that, that's fascinating. I mean, look, here we are on the 11th of the 11th, uh, 2019. So, this is, what, 101 years, you know, to the day since the end of the First World War. So, you know, and, and at 11 o'clock, you know, often, you know, we take two minutes of silence and, and, and all that sort of thing. But uh, this was 101 years ago. So, so, Daniel, can you just refresh our memories? What actually happened on the 11th of November 1918. Well, the shooting war came to an end on the Western Front. Right. Uh, that is to say, the Germans signed an armistice, not a peace treaty. That happened the following year at Versailles mm-hmm. uh, to to stop the the actual shooting war. It, it, was, it was a ceasefire, it was basically, at, mm. uh, at eleven o'clock on the eleventh of November. Right. Right. So th- this is what we call a ceasefire now. We're- or is it more, or is an, uh, yeah, is an armistice uh, more than that? It's it's, it's yeah. Ceasefire is probably a step down from an armistice. An armistice is where you you have a more formal agreement, a more long term agreement to stop shooting, mm-hmm. while you negotiate a peace treaty. A ceasefire might be so you can pick up the dead in no man's land or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm. Okay, but it actually took a whole year until the the, the sort of the agreements and the treaty and and everything was was concluded to officially end the First World War. A, a whole year. Why, why did it take them that long? What did they have to work out? Well, 
there were many parties to the negotiations. Mm. There were many allied countries who wanted to have their say, including Australia. Uh, Prime Minister Hughes went there and, and fought vigorously mm. for, for his agenda being part of the Versailles Peace Treaty. Oh, right. Okay. I mean, I, I remember high school history hearing that um, there was a, a lot of animosity against the, the Germans in particular. I mean, they weren't the only people on, you know, in, in the only country in, in the Axis side, but there was a desire to really make Germany pay, and there were some pretty stiff reparations that were uh, organised during that process that Germany pretty much had no choice but to accept. And it's even been suggested that they were one of the factors leading to the Second World War later on. Is is that a, a simplistic high school sort of version of history or, or is there some truth to that? Look, it's not bad. Of course, in the First World War, the Germans were part of what we call the central powers. The mm-hmm. Axis didn't exist until World War II. Oh, okay. My mistake. But no, there's, there's certainly the, the vengeful terms of the Versailles Treaty, led in particular by the French Premier, mm-hmm. who, who wanted to get the Germans back. This was the second time the Germans had invaded in, in 40 years. And so it, it took till late June 1919 to sign that treaty. Mm-hmm. Mm. Wow, okay. And and how... Uh, can you explain the origins to us of Armistice Day or, or Remembrance Day? That like, When did it actually sort of kick off and, and what was the motivation be, behind marking this, this date of the 11th of November every year? Well, it um, took off fairly early mm. because of the, the sheer scope of the Great War, the First World War. It was... It was actually celebrated, if, if that's the right word, or mm. remembered the, the year after the war ended. So it began in November 1919 right. with a, a meeting of the, the British king and the French president. And many countries around the world have picked up on it mm. and remember their war dead. Mm. with uh, Remembrance Day. And, and I guess at that point they called it the Great War, didn't they? They called it the war to end all wars. It it seems like the the impact of that First World War, the fact that it was such an international conflict, the the new technology that was that was involved there really left an incredible scar and an incredible psychological trauma on on so many populations of of so many nations. It did. In fact, it, it it marks a change in our attitude to war. This is the first time on any kind of scale that we've actually tried to bury the dead in individual marked graves. Right. Um, and the scale of death was on was on such a horrendous, you know, number of people that that we created vast war cemeteries that became. Mm sites of remembrance and sites of mourning. Um, in previous wars, you picked up the bodies, dug a big pit, threw them all in and, you know, walked away. But the First World War was different. Scale, the media made it possible for us to know, mm. sometimes in close to real time, what was happening. And so, it, and, uh, you know, lasting four or five years affecting the entire world, yeah, it, it really did have an enormous impact on, mm-hmm. on the international psyche.
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I know if if you're driving through, you know, the country in Australia, you you'll come to a, a little town, you know, that's you know a two horse town, as they say. But you'll go to the middle of that town. There'll be a cenotaph there, and there'll be a list of names of you know lives lost in the Great War. And it's often surprising, you know, if, if not shocking, for a town that size, how many you know men and and boys, let's face it, actually lost their lives from from that town in in that great war it's and it's repeated over and over all, all around australia and i guess in plenty of other countries too yes that that's exactly right the the scale of it was enormous and its impact in towns large and small across australia as you say can be can be seen in the cenotaphs in the in the boards in in churches and workplaces and you know mm. it, it Scarred a generation. Yeah, RSLs, yeah, all sorts of places. What's interesting, I find, is that in so many of these places, these World War One monuments in particular, the words, lest we forget. What What are we supposed to not be forgetting? And I guess the fact that I need to ask the question suggests that we, we may have. Yeah, well... When when Australia was involved in the war, uh, there was an overwhelming sense of purpose. The angst about the war wasn't about why we fought, but more how we fought. Mm-hmm. That the sense of large scale casualties and, and the front line not moving. You know, one of the ironies of war is that you can you can lose huge numbers of men in a retreat, and that's okay. And you can lose huge numbers in an advance, and that's okay. Mm. But when you lose huge numbers and go nowhere, that's that's when it's really problematic. And of course, that happened for three years on the Western Front. Mm. So, and and, and then and then I guess Gallipoli, similar, like years and years, and basically never never got anywhere. Same sort of story. Well, it was eight months at Gallipoli. Oh, okay, eight months. Sorry, yes. Yeah, but still a, a long time with no no ground and and a heck of a body count. Yes. Yeah, but Same that's sort of story. completely dwarfed by what happens on the Western Front, right. except in the Australian imagination. Yeah, right, okay. But coming back to to purpose, Australians were very clear as to why they fought. They fought for a series of values and outlooks, some of which we still have and some of which we hopefully are leaving or have left behind. Mm-hmm. So lest we forget is about... These men who sacrificed, and they, they were men predominantly, there were very, very few underaged soldiers in the Australian forces. Mm-hmm. They, they fought for their concept of liberty, which was a very British concept mm. of liberty. They fought against German, what they perceived as German values of tyranny and, and you know, militarism. Mm-hmm. They fought for the right for Australia to remain white. Oh, that wow. was very much at the forefront of their thinking. So lest we forget is a statement of these men lost their lives. Let's make sure that the reason they lost their lives isn't obscured and forgotten. Mm-hmm. Would you, do you think it has been? It depends what you mean by that. Now, now societies always change and their, their values always, you know, shift. And some of the things the Anzacs fought for, we would be very unhappy with today in Australia. Mm, mm. I mean, um, empire, for example, was a big deal, wasn't it? Empire and race. Over and over and over again, you find 
proudly, overtly racist statements in the in the rhetoric of Anzac, the, the soldiers' diaries and letters, the, the statements of politicians. One of the things that would shock Anzacs today if they could, you know, pop out of their graves and look at an Anzac Day march in Western Sydney <laughs> is that the school bands playing in their honour are, you know, <laughs> predominantly non-white. Mm. They actually fought to prevent that happening. Wow, okay. <laughs> but, but, you know, we've moved on and we can't blame them for standing up for their values, mm. nor should we resolve from the fact that they actually fought for that. But we've moved on. We can, we can say we've moved on from that. On the other hand, they were opposed to a particular view of militarism. They wanted to uphold a British concept of values, which in its day was probably one of the most liberal in the world. Mm. So in context, they, they largely fought for, for good things and, and uh, we can honour them because of the integrity with which they went to war. Mm-hmm. Something that, that fascinates me about the First World War in particular, Daniel, and I'd be interested, in the context of what you said, I'd be interested in, in your view on this. Often the phrase is bandied around at, you know, Anzac Day events that those diggers, those First World War soldiers died for our freedom. But from my way of thinking, Australia's freedom wasn't particularly threatened in, in the First World War. So, is this just a, a, I don't know, a, a convenient sort of post-event revisionism, or, or is there actually some truth to the that these guys in the First World War actually fought and died for our freedom? Well, I guess that hinges on our understanding of Australian. Yeah, uh, the Australians of the time saw themselves as British. Yeah, there was no Australian passport, not until 1948. Wow. Every Australian citizen was a citizen of Britain. Mm -hmm. And when Australians fought for freedom, they fought for the freedom for a British way of life as opposed to their perception of a German militaristic way of life. Right, okay. So it's that kind of freedom they're they're pushing for. And also the additional one, the the freedom for Australia to stay as a white man's country. And and that was the clause that Billy Hughes, the Prime Minister, fought tooth and nail for Mm, at mm. Versailles to make sure that Australia didn't have to let non-whites into the country. So, yeah, there were some specifically Australian freedoms, but more generically, they saw themselves as upholding uh, British values. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, look, in um, in this month's Signs of the Times magazine, Daniel Kuberek has, has written an article called How to Remember Them, uh, looking at, at some of these issues and making some practical suggestions. But he, he gives some interesting history along the way. He says that in 19... Well, it's not really history. It's not that long ago. In 19, 1997, the Governor-General at that time, Sir William Dean... De- de- uh, declared that Armistice Day would be renamed Remembrance Day. So it wouldn't just be about the First World War anymore. It would be about, I guess, all the conflicts, I mean, the past and, and up to the present in which Australian forces were, were fighting. Was that a, a, a wise decision to make, do you think? Or, or do you understand the rationale behind it? Yes, I think it's a very wise decision. Australia has an obsession with ANZAC that clouds its view of nearly everything else. Mm -hmm. A a recent book 
highlighted that by pointing out that we actually spent more on memorialising Anzac mm. over the last, you know, five years of Great War Remembrance than we've spent on our current living veterans. Wow. In fact, we've spent more per capita, significantly more per capita than any other country in the world on Great War Remembrance, but we are not doing well in looking after our current vets. Mm, boy, and, and these so, are guys who are often struggling with things like PTSD and... Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's warping our view of history. And again, we've got an obsession with Gallipoli, which was a minor campaign of eight months mm -hmm. compared with the huge campaign on the Western Front and, and the pretty large campaign in Palestine. Mm. So in a, in a way, the Anzac legacy, I mean, it's, it's true what it's about, but it distorts because we make it the only thing. And, and I think Sir William Dean was right to ask us to lift our vision to, to a broader sense of commemoration mm -hmm. yeah, I, yeah. I, I guess it's interesting because for me I guess I come from a I won't say I'm a pacifist but I, I, I probably have sympathies with the pacifist point of view and and seeing the I don't know just the, the waste of life in, in the First World War, the, the way that it escalated from, you know, one ally brought another ally on board who, and then the other side brought another ally on board and the whole thing escalated to become a world war when it, it doesn't really seem it needed to. And then we have these campaigns, like you say, that went on for months or years where, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of people died and the pointlessness of, of that war for me seems to ring in those words lest we forget but when we I don't there seems to be to me some really clear lessons that we should have learnt from from the first world war but then when we we sort of bring in the second world war the Vietnam war you know some uh, some other wars it sort of seems to muddy the waters a little bit in terms of hey you know war is a an awful pointless thing I mean am I trying to make something complex to, you know too too simple here or did you see where I'm coming from Yes, I do. And and I don't think lessons from war are necessarily simple. Mm. Wars happen for complex reasons. They, they are fought in complex ways and the conclusions can be complex as well. Mm. I'm not sure that the First World War was a pointless war. Okay. It, it happened at a point in time where few expected it. Everyone was expecting a European war, but not quite then. Right. Which is how it escalated, because nobody had their guard up. But essentially it was a clash between national egos. Mm. And, like, that's that's never acceptable. But the, the fact is it happens. And, yeah. you know, would, would you argue against someone who fought against Nazism or Japanese militarism in World War II? Would you say that they were fighting a good cause? Well, well that's right, exactly. That, that seems much more clear-cut. You know, Hitler invades, well, you've got to stop him. You know, the, the Japanese invade, well, you, you've got to stop them. But whereas First World, the First World War seems a lot more muddy, uh, I guess, a, a lot more difficult to sort of get your head around. You know, who, who made the first move? Who were the bad guys? Who, you know, what, who, who, who was trying to achieve what? It, it all seems to be you know, pretty, pretty confusing, and maybe that's just my lack of historical knowledge. Look, if you, if you simplified it, you would be demonstrating a lack of historical knowledge. It is complex, yeah. but complex doesn't necessarily mean 
pointless. Wrong. Yeah. Pointless. Yeah, yeah. Nor does the huge death count mean that it was conducted stupidly. Right. I mean, one of our popular myths in Australia is, you know, the British butcher generals, and if only we'd been in charge, we'd have been in Berlin, you know, <laughs> yeah. in six weeks, which you can actually find those kinds of statements in some soldier diaries. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, the First World War was being fought in a completely new way, mm. and the generals had to learn. They were on a learning curve. They, they mm. rarely made the same mistake twice. Yeah, so right, tr trenches, barbed wire, machine guns, tanks, like tanks, mu mustard planes, gas. You name it, gas. Yeah, yeah. And, all and new the technology. Is, the guys on the other side are learning at the same rate as you are. So you go, aha, that didn't work, I'll try this. And they're going, oh boy, that nearly worked, let me do this. Mm -hmm. And so you find both sides going through a learning curve simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And it takes them, there are some fundamental military mechanics as to why the First World War on the Western Front was a stalemate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's easy to blame stupid generals, and, and that's not fair. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, you, you mentioned this, um, there was this, this tension there, these national egos. Um, I, I wonder, when you look around the world right now, you see, you know, for example, in the Middle East, we, we seem to have, you know, the US, Saudi Arabia, and the Sunni militants kind of lining up against, you know, Russia and, and Iran and Syria and some of the, the Shia sort of forces. Uh, in, in Libya, just, just recently, it seems like this sort of pattern is repeating itself again as it did in Syria, as it sort of has in, in, in Iraq. Do, do you see a risk of, of forgetting some of those lessons from the First World War, those national ego sort of lessons, and, and perhaps, you know, repeating some of those, those same disasters? We, we've never learnt those lessons. Yeah. You know, you haven't mentioned China or North Korea. Well, or, yeah, there's that too, yeah. You know, not to single them out, but to add them to the pool of collective egos that are clashing in the world. Oh, that's right, yeah, yeah. And and Australia is innocent only because our, our military muscle is smaller than our political desire. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's a human problem. We've been violent with each other since the dawn of human history. Yeah. It's not war we need to change, it's it's human nature. Mm. Boy, yeah, that's that's a challenge. <laughs> have ha, have you seen any uh, suggestions of that being possible? I mean, I know there are advocates out there who who say that there are peacemaking efforts that have actually been more successful in in achieving political goals, in, in achieving you know harmony between um, you know parties in conflict than actual war. Do you do you see potential there for for peacemaking strategies you know being taken more seriously? Oh, absolutely. You know, there's a, there's a famous statement by Jesus in the Bible, mm. blessed are the peacemakers. And uh, there is something special about peace. If you want to look, for example, at World War One and World War Two, mm. you can't make peace by waging war. Yeah. You, you can't kill people into goodness. Uh, yeah. uh, I, I read the diary of, a, of an Australian soldier. He was Christian and, and uh, very committed and he heard a chaplain say, you know, I've, I've come over here to beat the offending Adam out of the Germans. And he wrote, I, I don't want to go into war with a bitter spirit, you know, with an angry spirit. And, and I like this idea of beating the offending Adam out of the Germans. Well, he was killed in his first battle. It was the Battle of Fromel. Oh, okay. His body was recently recovered. It's in the Pheasant Wood Cemetery at Fromel. 
On the other side in that battle was a certain corporal, a German corporal, Austrian actually. His name was Adolf Hitler. Whoa. He survived that battle and many others. Mm. And he's living proof that you cannot beat the offending Adam out of somebody with guns and bullets. Mm. He started the Second World War out of vengeance for the First. Mm. What's the difference between the First and the Second World War is in the First World War, the winners sought to punish the losers. Yeah. And in the Second World War, the Americans, bless their souls, decided to win over as many of their enemies as possible mm, mm. by generously rebuilding them, Japan and Germany. Well, after dropping nuclear bombs on them, it needs to be <laughs> added. But, but yes, sure. I, 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 sure. I see what I mean, you're you saying. you can't wage war nicely. Yeah. But what I'm saying is you can win a war through military means, but you have to win a peace afterwards. Yes. Otherwise, you're up for another war. Well, you're right, yeah. And, 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 and what and, we're good at doing as humans is fighting wars and winning them, mm -hmm. but we're not good at going, uh, now that I've won it, I have to treat my enemy as my friend, mm. otherwise they will continue to be my enemy. Yeah, and I guess we've seen this in Iraq, we've seen this in Afghanistan. Yes, it's easy to, you know, topple a dictator or, or you know, kick out exactly. the Taliban or whatever, but, yeah, winning the peace is the challenge, yeah. Oh, so and it's, it's often more expensive than the war, and that's why we won't do it. <laughs> yeah, we're sure. Too, we're too selfish and greedy. Sure, <laughs> sure. Now, look, Daniel Kuberic, in, in his article, goes through a number of ways to, uh, I mean, his article is called How to Remember Them, and he gives a number of uh, practical ways about, you know, educating yourself, um, there are online resources, there are Remembrance Day services, you know, happening all over the place. In New Zealand, they have a national grave cleaning project, which which sounds great. And there are also a bunch of veterans organisations you can donate to and help out and, and support. What would you suggest, Daniel, or what has been the most meaningful to you when it comes to Remembrance Day, when it comes to doing something practical or something with your family that you know in increases your your knowledge or, or appreciation or, or perhaps you know it makes a positive co contribution in, in remembrance personally i'm a big fan of turning lest we forget into a contemporary action rather than a retrospective one mm -hmm. oh, what do you mean by that well I'm not opposed to clean graves and tidy war cemeteries or, uh, you know, dawn parades or any other form of commemoration. But if these people genuinely fought for our freedom, mm. then to honour them would be to advance the cause of freedom here and now for people who have less freedom than we do. Mm. There are plenty of them in Australian society and there are plenty, plenty more in the rest of the world. So maybe the best commemoration we could do is to take their death seriously by making someone's life better. Yeah, wow. Hey, thank you so much uh, for your time today, uh, Professor Daniel, Daniel Renault. I really appreciate your, your insights. A pleasure. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Science of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au. Signs of the Times has been published in Australia since 1886 and is proudly produced by Adventist Media. 